This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 65. It can be found on page 623 of the Bible in the pew in front of you. Again, that's Isaiah 65. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both their iniquities and their father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will repay into their lap payment for their former deeds. Thus says the Lord, As the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it, so I will do for for my servants' sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Acre a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forgot my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and filled cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword, and all you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Therefore, thus says the Lord, God, behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall, not, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death but his servants he will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth, and he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever, In that which I create, for behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. 
No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit, and they shall not plant and another eat. For the days of a tree, for like the days of a tree, shall be the days of my people. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you all. Uh, My name is Ron. I'm one of the pastors here, if we haven't had the privilege to meet. Uh, Before we dive into the text this morning, I just want to give us a brief overview of where we're going to be in the next couple weeks as we come to the end of our time in Isaiah. Uh, There are some of you in the room that like, you probably think that we only and always ever preach Isaiah. So we're just going to start over again. Uh, No, we... um, (laughs) No, we, we started Isaiah in January of 2021 and have been faithfully working our way through it outside of a few weeks in the summer, last summer for preaching the Psalms and Advent. I think we've been at it for 17 months now. And uh, next week, Lord willing, uh, we're going to come to the close of it. I don't know if that's actually true because in the first service, I preached about half a sermon and uh, got about halfway done and was like, oh, I guess we got to pick up here next week. So I don't know what that does. But the plan is to be done with Isaiah next week. We'll have Easter the following week. And then the week after Easter for 10 weeks, we're going to be in John 14 to 16, which is called the Upper Room Discourse. It is a beautiful portion of scripture where Jesus draws near to his disciples on the night that he's about to be betrayed, the night before he gives his life as a sacrifice. And the disciples are disoriented and they are completely unaware of what's about to happen. They're going to be, uh, suffer uh, remarkable loss, remarkable grief, remarkable betrayal at, a, at the hands of a friend who has walked with them for years. They're going to come face to face with their own denial of Jesus, their betrayal of Jesus themselves. And into that moment, Jesus preaches this sermon to them under the banner of, don't let your heart be troubled. As you walk through this remarkably trying time, let me give to you some truths that can stabilize and secure your heart in the midst of remarkable difficulty. And so we're going to take 10 weeks and walk through those three chapters together as we find ourselves in this world in in, in a lot of ways struggling with similar things, right? Like loss of expectation, hope deferred. We're always coming up to get against our uh, awareness of our own um, frailty and our own um, inabilities before God. We experience betrayal and hardship and testing. And Jesus speaks these beautiful words as a means for our hearts to not become offended. 
And so we're going to press into those, Lord willing, the uh, weeks after Easter, depending on how far I can get this morning. So with that, uh, I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna dive into the text. So God, we do thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that you speak to us, that you reveal yourself to us, that you make yourself known. God, I ask this morning as we open this text that you would grant us a spirit of revelation. Would you soften our hearts? Would you make our hearts attentive, receptive, um, willing to receive? God, would you give us responsive hearts? God, would you help us to see what you're at work doing in the world, even in times when it appears to us maybe like you are restraining or silent? God, would you allow these truths to soften us and sustain us? Would you give us confidence before you to not become despairing or uh, disheartened or offended, but that our hearts would be stable before you in hope. God, would you give us those gifts this morning for the sake of your son, Jesus, in his name we pray, amen. And so the last two weeks, if you have been here with us, uh, we've, we've looked at the prayer that Isaiah prayed in chapters 63 and 64 as we saw there the desperate state of God's people as they found themselves in relation to all that God had promised that he would do to bring salvation, it brought Isaiah to this place of utter desperation uh, to petition the Lord. We saw back in Isaiah 62 that God said, one of the ways that I'm gonna demonstrate my commitment to my purposes is I am going to engender among the hearts of people this uh, petitioning-like watchfulness. He said, I'm gonna put watchmen intercessors on the wall and they're going to not stop reminding me of my promises until I accomplish them. And Isaiah in these two chapters has taken on the mantle of what this looks like in a place of desperation, in a place of longing for God to move. So now in the last two chapters of the book, God himself responds and declares what he is actually at work doing. Even in the midst of the places where it appears like there's a delay between his promises and the fulfillment of his promises. These two chapters are exclusively the proclamation of God to a people concerning the ways that he is even presently at work and what will be the final outcome of his work in the world. These chapters are a particular word of perspective and hope for those navigating the difficulty of living in this waiting period, right? We've talked about again and again in this section of Isaiah 56 to 66 being spoken to a people who lived in an in-between time where God had promised the work of salvation in fullness, but the people found themselves waiting for the day when he would make that uh, full and final. And we find ourselves as the people of God in a similar place. We've experienced and tasted the salvation of God and the person of Jesus, all of his promises being made yes and amen in him. Yet we find ourselves still living in a world where we're waiting for the full manifestation of his glory and his power and his life and his purposes, all of his promises to be consummated ultimately in Christ Jesus. And in that 
moment, in that delay, we're faced with all these tensions. What's God at work doing? Why does he seem far off? Why is he restrained towards us? Why is he silent? These two chapters and chapter 65 in particular speak a word of consolation into those realities. As we come to this chapter, you could in some ways see this as a response to Isaiah's question at the end of his prayer. Look with me at 64 verse 12. Isaiah at the end of his prayer, after he's asked God to rip open the heavens and come down himself to make things that oppose him or stand in his way, shake and tremble at his presence to do mighty things in their midst. He closes his prayer with a, with a question. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us terribly? So he's closing his prayer saying, will you remain in a, in a place where you are restrained towards us, where you are seemingly silent? Will you stay there? And this chapter comes in so many ways as a declaration of God. What is he doing in the midst of it? You could say this is an answer to the question, what is God actually doing in the delay? So what we're gonna look at is three things this morning in three sections of this text that provide answers to that question. What is God doing in the delay? In this place, we find ourselves between the promise and the fulfillment. When it seems like you could be tempted to believe that he is restrained or silent or inactive, what is he actually doing? And the three things are this. The first thing we'll see is that God is pursuing a rebellious people. That's verses one to seven. God is pursuing a rebellious people. In the delay, he is pursuing The second thing we're gonna see is God is saving a remnant people. That's verses eight to 16. God is actively at work saving a remnant in the delay. And the last thing we'll see is that God is preparing a new creation. He's preparing a new creation. And that's the last verses in 17 to 25. So the opening line of Isaiah 65, God's desire is shown in spite of the people's rebellion. If the, answer, if the question is, what is God doing in the delay? And the first answer is he's pursuing. We see that in this opening line of Isaiah 65. It comes almost like a corrective response to Isaiah's question in the last verse of chapter 64. The Lord begins by declaring and showing himself once again that the problem of the people's experience is not his problem. It's not a problem with him. It's a problem with them. He shows this yet again. The interpretation of his, if if we have this interpretation of his activity as he is silent, he is restrained, he is not at work, he is distant, we could not be further from the truth is what God breaks in and says here. Read this in chapter 65, verse one. I was ready to be sought by those who were not calling or did not ask. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation not called by my name. So what we see here is rather than God presenting himself or or saying, yes, I'm remaining absent from you. 
he speaks to that question and says, I'm ready to be found. I'm ready to be sought. I've been the one standing here day after day after day after day saying, over here, over here, over here, all day long. Rather than portraying a stingy or withholding God, the scriptures present a God who longs to be sought. He longs to be found. He says, I was ready to be sought. I was ready to be found. All day long, I was calling out, here I am, here I am. Look at verse two. Spreading out my hands all day to a rebellious people. So almost immediately, what God does is he breaks in and he says, if the question is posed to me, will you continue to be silent? Will you continue to restrain? He immediately responds with, I'm ready to be sought. I am ready to be found. I haven't been silent. All day long, I've been stretching out my hands, saying, here I am, here I am, here I am. He shows yet again, as we've seen time and time and time again, God says, if there is a problem with the experience of the people, it is not because I have not been active. It is because their hearts are not disposed to receive of me or respond to me or hear me. He see, we see this again. I spread out my hands to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. And he goes on to show in the rest of these verses, two to seven, that these people have continued in their ways of sin and their hearts are far from him. So the first answer that comes is God saying, what I'm doing in the apparent delay is actually calling out to a rebellious people. The perception of delay is not because I'm not speaking, God would say. The perception is that there are people who have eyes, their eyes cannot see and their ears cannot hear. What I am at work doing, how I am calling, how I am leading. Like, the, like I said, the remaining verses of this section depict a hypocritical people who are content to put on a show of religious activity without necessarily engaging their hearts. They don't have contrition or humility or repentance or submission. Because of this, we see in verse five that the Lord will become angry. That's the picture of smoke in his nostrils, a fire that will not go out. And he will repay into their lap all of the iniquities and insults of their hearts, verses six and seven. So the first answer comes to us pretty immediately. The perspective of the question, what are you doing in the delay, is I'm calling. I'm ready to be found. I'm ready to be sought, God says. But the second thing we see is God is about something as well in the midst of that. He's preparing and preserving and calling a remnant people. This is what happens in verse eight to 16. We see in this section that God is gonna preserve for himself those who are faithful 
and continue to seek him. This is an idea we've seen throughout the book as we've preached through Isaiah, the idea of a remnant. This remnant will be protected from the coming judgment that God promised in verses two to seven. Look with me at verse eight. The image that begins this section is the reality of what God says he's doing. He says, I'm preserving the whole cluster of grapes because there are some within it that are ripe for new wine. I want you to see this. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster and they say, do not destroy it for there is a blessing in it. So also will I do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. The image that begins this is really important. I want us to see something here. God declares, if you're asking, God, what are you doing in the delay? Why are you delaying? Why are you apparently silent? Why are you apparently restrained in your actions toward us? He declares that part of the reason that he is not fully and ultimately acting is because that for him to come in this manner would require his perfect and his holy judgment. He desires therefore to be patient that he might give time to bring forth out of his people and to make for himself servants, those who will seek him. This is what Paul gets at in Romans chapter two, verse four, where he says, don't misinterpret God's apparent silence in the world. He says, God's kindness, his unmerited kindness that is being experienced right now isn't meant to provoke you to do, uh, to walk away from him. It's actually meant to lead you to a posture of repentance. He withholds the fullness of his power and his justice upon an undeserving people because he longs for people to come to repentance and know him. This is what Peter says in 2 Peter 3 verse 9. He says, God suffers long and does not bring about the full manifestation of his presence and power because he desires more to be saved. One of the things that we're going to see here in this portion is that one of the reasons that we can understand the delay of God's work is that he desires to save people. He desires to call people out, to bring them to himself, to draw them near. And we see that in this moment. He says, because of that, I'm going to preserve the whole and allow there to be time so that, we see it in verse nine, right? I will do this for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. You could think about this a little differently. This is what Jesus gets at in Matthew 13, when he tells the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus tells a story about the kingdom. He says, the kingdom of God is like a person going out into the field and he sows all this good seed. And at night, an enemy comes in and sows all of these tares and uh, bad seed among the field. And they start to grow up and the servants go, oh no, there's all these bad crops among the good crops. Should we go in and begin to uproot all the bad ones? And the master says, no, don't go do it. That will actually do damage to what what I'm at work doing. Let them grow up together 
and there will be a day when I separate them. So we see Jesus at work doing that as well as he tells that story. So one of the things this section shows us is part of why the Lord is restraining is for the sake of a remnant. Now I want you to see this in verse nine. Look at the language here. These people are brought out of Jacob. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen will possess it and my servants will dwell there. Why I wanna say that is this. This matters because Isaiah's hearers, and this is no different for you and for me today. They're, they needed to be reminded that participation in the external practices of God's people did not necessitate that we are God's people. Let me say that again. He says, I'm gonna take out of Jacob, which were his covenant people. He says, I'm gonna take out of them some to be my servants. Now, what this is saying in this moment is, it, because you share the external realities of God's people does not necessitate that you are his people. He goes on to show that uh, participation in the people of God has to do with this phrase at the end of verse 10. For my people who have sought me. He says there's an actual heart response of seeking, of pursuing, of participating in, of laying hold of what I am at work doing. So for the faithful, those who seek the Lord or respond to his call in faith and in obedience, they will receive rest, he says. They will receive hope. And into this, God then promises there will be a one day a great separation. That's what's happening in verse 13 to 16, where you get this language of, my servants will eat, but you will be hungry. They will drink, you will be thirsty. They will have these things, you will have these things. He says, I will, because I know who are mine, I will one day make that evident. So he says, one of the things I'm at work doing right now is saving and calling and bringing forth a remnant from among my people who will seek me. Okay, now I wanna push pause here for a little bit. I'm gonna do something unique here because I want to, Lord willing, take some of those strands that we've been putting on the table over the last several weeks and tie something up for us as we come to the end of Isaiah. And I think it's important. I wanna step back and give us a pattern of how God works in the world because I want us to rightly see where we find ourselves so that we can rightly respond to what God's at work doing. I think we see throughout scripture and throughout the history of the church, a similar pattern of how God deals with his people in history. I don't think history is cyclical, but I think it rhymes. Like I think when God does things, it rhymes with itself because God's the same and people are the same, right? We're, we're fickle, we're sinful, we're broken. We're always looking out for ourselves and God doesn't change. 
He's using the same kind of things, right? So we see these patterns. And I wanna demonstrate for us what this pattern is because I think it's important for us where we find ourselves. And I pray this morning that there will be some in this room who feel like a breath of encouragement to respond to what God is doing and to lean in and to say yes. Because I think God's at work doing this um, in this moment. And so I wanna lay out this pattern for us. This pattern, you can see it again, all through scripture, all through church history. But it's important again, so that we can respond. Where are we? What time is it? And how do we respond? The first thing we could say, if you could start with, is that God breaks in in seasons of renewal or revival or refreshing, however you want to call it, right? He visits his people in profound ways and awakens them to his power, his purpose. He expresses and manifests his kingdom among them. He awakens hunger and desire for his nearness. He makes the church come alive and it awakens passion for the glory of God and an evangelistic fervor to witness to his goodness, his grace and the power of the gospel. And what we see in that moment is this renewal, this returning to, you could say, first love of the church, where there's this simplicity of devotion in love for God with all of who we are and a laying out and declaring as witnesses to his goodness to a watching world. So we see seasons of renewal. And then on the heels of that, what we often see is the residue of that creates this momentum of profound growth in pockets of society or pockets of culture. And we see this again, all throughout scripture, all throughout the history of the church. The church grows, it deepens in its affections for who God is. It aligns itself with his ways and what he's about. And we see in that moment, God through his people will push back darkness and withhold darkness. And it actually has really beautiful and lasting effects, maybe in a society or in a culture or in a city or even in a nation. And there's this growth where we see a, a season of reprieve or a season of restraint where darkness does not grow in the same way or it doesn't press in the same way. On the heels of that, we see regularly, and this is, it feels counterintuitive, we see seasons of decline in the church. Seasons of decline in the church. And this happens because the church begins to trade her first love for the cares of this life and the love of other things. You could say it like this. This is when the church gets invited to the country club, right? When we get invited to the country club, what happens there? Well, you got to stop like being offensive to the world. You got to stop drawing lines around who we are as a people or declaring the truth of who Jesus is. You got to give up all of these things and you begin to, we begin to buy the lie 
that we, that the call of the, of the gospel is come follow me and die. And we start to go, I can have the world and Jesus. And it happens. You want proof? Go read Ephesians chapter two, where Jesus speaks to the Ephesian church. It's 50 years removed from what happened in the book of Acts where there's this profound revival in the city of Ephesus where Paul shows up and for a year and a half, people are coming to know Jesus in such a profound way that it's shaking the religious system of Diana in the, in the city of Ephesus. People are coming in and like, renouncing their witchcraft and throwing their idols into these fires and it's literally shaking the powers that be. And 50 years later, Jesus comes to the church through the letter of Revelation to them and says, you've lost your first love. 50 years removed, one generation, they've walked away. They're still doing all the outside stuff they're still doing good works and, and, and championing good things, but internally they've lost a zealous passion for the glory of God. And he says, I have this against you. You've lost your first love. It happens. Seasons of decline happen in the church. Now on the heels of this, three things happen that these aren't successive. These are kind of like, um, did you guys ever in basketball practice play the three-man weave, yes. right? Like these are a three-man weave of realities that happen kind of all at the same time and may play off each other and God will use them at different times and in different ways to bring forth his purposes, one thing that happens, one of the guys in the three-man weave is God begins to deposit into the hearts of his people disillusionment and discontent. We begin to get stirred up. People that aren't content with the status quo, right? People that are hungry for the presence of God. People that read the word and go, hey, the things that I see here and the things that are so, I'm so quick to cast my, my chips into, there's a big gap between them. I'm discontent. God, there's gotta be more, right? God, there's gotta be more, more than this. This, is, this, this feels away, away from what you've called your people to. There's, there's gotta be more. They see the value and the worth of the kingdom of God and they desire to sell everything, sell it all to follow in his ways. Now, let me tell you two things. This is where I hope it feels really encouraging to you. Number one, this often happens away from the power bases. This often happens away from the power bases. God will oftentimes call people on the margins to feel this discontent and disillusionment because he loves to work among, in places where when it's all said and done, we can't glory in it. This is him taking a handful of fishermen and tax collectors 
and going, hey, I'm gonna start a revolutionary movement that changes the world and turns it upside down with you guys. This is how he works. It's often on the margins and oftentimes, and this is where I wanna speak directly to the hearts of some of y'all in this room. Some of you in the room feel this and you feel isolated and alone. You feel crazy. You feel crazy. You feel like there's this ache in me for something more. There's an ache in me for, I don't just want business as usual. I don't want good systems and kind of like Sunday morning churchianity. I want something real. I want the presence of God. I want the power of God. I want to see God alive and at work. I want to see the power of God set people free. I want to see the lost come to know Jesus. I want to see the gospel go forth in our city with power and with speed. And you feel crazy. You feel alone. This is how God does it. This is part of it. So that's one man of the three-man weave. The second is, oftentimes into these seasons, there will be a reorienting crisis, a shakeup. There will be something that takes the snow globe and just violently shakes it and kicks up everything. Maybe it's a pandemic. Maybe it's a war. Maybe it's upheaval among societal systems, cultural systems. God will use things to shake the foundations and show us what things are built on. He'll actually like allow storms to happen so that we look and go, the foundation was built on something faulty. There was a crack in the foundation. It was built on sand. It was built on something that didn't last. It was built on something outside of God's values, God's designs, God's desires. This exposes places of idolatry, things we've used to prop ourselves up and burns away chaff and unnecessary affections. Has the potential to profoundly refine us. Disillusionment, discontent, crisis. The last man in the three-man weave is, the, is a contending remnant. God's answer is almost always to begin with a white-hot praying remnant who take on the posture of these watchmen intercessors that we saw in chapter 62 and will not rest until God acts again. These are people like Jacob. I've been thinking about this a lot. Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord where they go, I'm not gonna let go. I will not let go until you bless us. I won't stop. I have this ache in me, this longing in me. I see who you are. I see what you've promised. I see the fullness of what you are at work doing or what you, what you long to do. And I will not give rest to my eyes until you do it. I won't stop. I'm gonna, I'm gonna lay hold of you and I won't give up. It's the persistent widow in Luke 18. 
I'm gonna keep knocking on the door again and again and again. I'm gonna bug you until you do what you promised you would do. I will not stop. One of the cool things about this though is God doesn't need numbers, right? That's what we see here. Out of this, I will, I will draw some. God's actually not even concerned all that much with how big something is, how flashy it is, how cool it is, how well-organized it is, all that kind of stuff. God, sometimes when he wants to work, he'll actually go, hey, that thing's way too big for me. Let me take the army and cut it all the way down to 300. The story of Gideon. So that when you go out to war, there is no way that you can begin to believe that you did it. Your ingenuity, your wisdom, your charisma, your dedication, your numbers, your coolness, your momentum, your bigness, your loudness. God goes, Hey, sometimes, you know what I'm at work, at work doing? I'm at work dwindling numbers so that out of the stump, a seed will come out. I'll make it white hot and alive and zealous. And then what we see oftentimes is God opens his hand and visits it starts the cycle again. Renewal, refreshing, all of that. Hey, I just want to ask a couple questions. How do we do that, right? How do we seek the Lord in this season of delay, right? How do we, how do we seek him? If this is a pattern, where do we find ourselves? I don't think it's really hard to maybe name where we find ourselves, right? We have at one point experienced a real season of growth and acceptance and stability as a church and a society and in a nation and all that. How many of you believe that's over, right? That, that's done, that's over with. The, the, the writing is on the wall. It is clear that the seasons are changing. And I think God is awakening in his bride a hunger for reality, a hunger for his fullness, a hunger for passion for his glory, a hunger for a, a deeper witness of his kingdom and his power in our world. I think he's at work doing that. So how do we respond? How do we, how do we set our hearts in that? I just wanna give a couple ways. The first is we trust Christ alone, right? We see this again and again and again External participation does not guarantee or necessitate that we are joined to Christ. Faith in Christ and trust in his ways, no matter what, is the primary response to lay all of our lives at his feet and say, I have no other hope but you, no other help but you, no other option but you. And I will submit every single part of my life to your call, your designs, your ways, your truth, no matter what it costs. That's how we begin to seek that, right? We trust Jesus. And trusting Jesus isn't just like 
praying a prayer or saying uh, something into the air. Trusting Jesus is casting all of our life at his feet, finding hope in him alone through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And in that place, sustained by his grace and his power, orienting all of our lives up under submission to his ways. We seek him. We seek him, evidencing our trust in him. The second thing that I would encourage you to do is ask God for revelation of the treasure of his glory and of his kingdom. To see the worth of Christ and to see the worth of his kingdom that would compel us to sell all and pursue him. This is, again, in Matthew 13, another parable that Jesus told. He says, the kingdom of God is like a treasure in the field that a person found. And when he found it, he buried it again, ran, sold everything he had so he could lay hold of it. Ask God for revelation of that, of his glory, the glory of his person, the glory of his kingdom, all that he is and all that he desires. Ask him for revelation of the treasure of it. Paul says it this way in Philippians 3. He says, I count everything that's behind me as loss and I press on so that I might know the glory of Jesus, right? He says, this is my response. The third thing, if you feel disillusioned and discontent, this is gonna seem counterintuitive. Lean into it. Don't run away from it. Don't run away from it. Don't try to numb it. Don't try to talk yourself out of it. Do not run away from it. Rejoice in it. Do you wanna know what Jesus calls discontent and disillusionment? Poverty of spirit, mourning, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You wanna know what he says about you if you experience those things? You are blessed. You are blessed. That is the good life in the kingdom. You want a picture of what it looks like, the values of the kingdom of God? Poor in spirit, mourning, hungering, thirsting, longing for God's righteousness and his ways. And here's the problem. You and I, we don't like those feelings, right? When was the last time that we just like really enjoyed feeling dependent, deficient, absolutely needy? When was the last time we really enjoyed mourning or being hungry, right? Those things are not in our own assessment of things. They are not the things we choose. But God says, you are blessed if you experience those things. What we wanna do in those places, this is why I say lean into it. Don't run away from it, don't numb it, don't try to talk yourself out of it. We are so quick to numb those things, right? We feel a little like desperation, we feel a little longing, we feel a little hunger and thirst for righteousness and we go, I can't stay in this place very long. 
and we wanna go put a little salve on that thing, right? And we do it through all sorts of things, entertainment, comfort, running after other things. We try to soothe that and make it go away. Don't do it. Hey, and let me say this as well. This might come as like a little bit. Don't talk yourself out of it and don't let somebody else talk you out of it. There will always be well-intended people that try to give you false comfort to the places where you feel poor in spirit and you feel mourning and you feel hungry and thirsty for the righteousness of God. Don't do it. Don't do it. Ask God for grace to lean into that, not to run away from it. The fourth thing that we can do here. Matthew 25, the first 13 verses of Matthew 25 tells us another story where Jesus compares five wise virgins to five foolish virgins. And he says, the wise ones understood what time it was and they went out prepared, having brought oil with them. And the oil in the parable talks about a reality of God, of life in God internally. Oil's the internal thing that gives life to flame, right? It's the internal thing. Nobody sees it. Nobody gets excited about the oil. People get excited about the light. The oil is the inside thing that nobody sees. He says, wisdom is defined by oil. Cultivate a life in God. Cultivate a life in God. Right now, how do we respond? Cultivate a life in God. Hey, I've had, I've had more conversations in the last several weeks with younger guys who are really, really jazzed to get into ministry. They feel this call to ministry. They feel like, they're, uh, like things are getting awakened in them and they want to put their hands to something and they want to get after something. And I've given all of them what I be, I've, I've experienced, at least in the telling, as remarkably disappointing advice. Um, I think they're wanting to go like, how do I get to where I can do stuff? How do I put my hands to stuff? Like, how do I get open doors to start like really making an impact and doing all these things? What should I do? And I go, hey, don't even worry about what you're doing. Get an alive heart in God. Do what John the Baptist, when Jesus talks about John the Baptist, you want to know, know what he said about him? He was a burning and shining torch. John Wesley talked about, you know what I do in my ministry? Before God, I let him light me on fire and then people come and watch me burn. You want to know the number one thing in a season like now to respond to God? Cultivate inner reality. Cultivate inner reality with God. Communion with him, intimacy with him, depth in his word, talk to him, open his word and start to say it back to him. Start to ask him to speak to you. Start to ask him to make himself known to you more. Begin to cultivate inner reality. That is what is needed right now. Where we are, the, the time we find ourselves in, 
aligning our lives with the truth of who God is and having a heart that is alive and burning is the only thing that matters. It is the first and foremost importance in our lives. So stockpile oil. Now here's the hard part. You can't do it on the run. You can't do it on the fly. You can't do it in the hurry. When was the last time you, uh, you tried to get to know somebody and you said, hey, here's how we're gonna get to know each other. Five minutes a week, we'll talk. And then I'll talk about how much I wanna talk to you and feel bad that I don't, but five minutes a week. We can't do it, right? Like we know that. It takes real time, real effort, real energy, not effort in earning something, effort in going, God, would you come and speak to me? I'm gonna dispose myself of the means of grace that you have given us, reading his word, asking him to move in our hearts, speaking back to him the things that he has spoken to us, fasting, prayer. He's laid things out for us, disposing ourselves of every means of grace available and saying, God, would you cultivate reality in me? And we don't have to feel hopeless there. We don't have to feel hopeless there. I've been, I, I, I had this image come to my mind this morning because I, I, I feel, I don't know if you feel this or not. I feel a sense of urgency in the, in the time we find ourselves in. I really do. I, I think that God is on the move doing things and getting things ready to, I, I don't know if there's another tectonic shift coming or if the tectonic shift is just getting us ready to like reorganize and restructure how we do things and what we're about. But like, I think there is some real change. Change isn't fun, right? Like who likes change? Most of us don't like it. Some of us are hardwired to love it, but some of us aren't. What do you do there, right? And you could feel this like, oh my goodness, that's so overwhelming. I felt this this morning, like going, God, I feel like you're really at work. I feel like you're really doing stuff. I feel like it's really urgent. If the call went forth, the Matthew 25, the bridegroom is coming, are we ready? What's going on in here? Do I have reality? Do I have reality? Do we have reality? I'm like going, oh my goodness, God, would you, would you reorient my life? Would you give me like grace to press in and reach and lay hold of? And I felt like God go, hey, here's some encouragement. You wanna know how I deal with people? Go to Matthew 20 and read the parable of the workers in the field. He goes, hey, people that come at the beginning of the day and people that come at the 11th hour, I deal with them the same way. So you don't have to feel like you're behind or you're like late to the game or anything like that. Like all that matters is today going, God, would you help me to cultivate reality in you today? God, would you give me of yourself? Would you awaken me to your truth? Would you awaken me to what you're at work doing? Would you reorient and restructure and bring and draw me so that I'm alive in you. 
and I'm awake in you and I'm sober in you and you're at work here. God, would you give me that kind of grace? Now, just like the first service, I'm way over time and nowhere near done, but I am going to be done. We'll just pick up next week. Hey, here's how, what I want to do. I want us to stand together and I want us to respond Hey, and we're going to respond in three ways. First way is just for a couple moments, we're just going to invite the Lord to, to speak to us. We're going to present ourselves to him. We're going to, we're going to turn our, our, our gaze to him, our hearts to him and say, come and speak to us. Come and move in our midst. If there's places where we need to repent, if there's places where we need to um, turn our hearts and submit ourselves back to you, would you show us and speak to us and give us the grace to do that? If there's places where we're going, oh God, I feel that. I feel that discontent, disillusion. Uh, I feel like you're at work doing something and I may not know what it is or what it's going to look like, but I know I don't want to go back to where things were. I'm gonna ask God to fuel that and fan that and breathe on that. That's gonna be the first way. We're just gonna take a couple moments to do that. Then we're gonna to come to the table. And as we have every single week, we'll have people throughout the sanctuary that would love to pray with and for you. And I wanna really encourage you, if you're feeling stirred in your, in your soul today, if you feel this like, God, I want to be awake. I want reality. I want what you're doing to be alive in my heart. Like, Let's pray with and for one another in that place, asking him to move upon us, to speak to us, to direct us, to awaken us and orient us as a people toward that. So even, even as Nathan begins to, to play here, let's just, before God, here we are. God, I ask in this room, even right now, that you would begin to move? Would you begin to stir, stir us in, in like the deep waters of our souls? God, I ask that there would be um, deeper longing, deeper hunger, deeper passion that's awakened right now. God, I ask, I ask for those in this room that as I talked about discontent, disillusionment, feeling alone, feeling isolated. God, I ask right now, Spirit of God, would you, would you breathe on those embers in this place? And I ask that your nearness would validate your work. God, would you show yourself that you are looking down and near to us here? God, I ask for our hearts in this room. We just say yes, that we long to be alive in you. We long to be awake in you. We long to experience your fullness. 
God, would you activate among us a, 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 a zealous pursuit of all that you have? God, that we would be like Jacob, those who are, are not content to let go of you. And on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread. After giving thanks for it, he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same manner, he took a cup of wine and he passed it. And he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take this and drink of it. Do this in remembrance of me. This morning, we're gonna come and receive remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus as our only hope. So one of the ways we respond is by putting our trust in Jesus. Yet again, in declaring that we are his and he is ours and that the only way we find life in this world and in his new creation is through his broken body and his shed blood. If you believe that you're a Christian, I wanna invite you to come and take communion. The way we take communion here is break a piece of the bread off, dip it into the cup. We've got wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware, and we have uh, gluten-free over here to my right, a single serve if that's what you need. We're gonna come and celebrate that together. And again, if you're in this room and you desire someone to pray with or for you, um, either find somebody around the room, they've got lanyards that say prayer minister on it, or uh, just step into the aisles or ask somebody next to you to pray with you, um, that God would awaken us and fan the flame in us. We're gonna come and receive. We're gonna respond now through song, coming and receiving communion together.